Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts confirms a leaked draft decision overturning Roe v. Wade is legitimate, though not a final court decision. It's Wednesday, May th- Tuesday, May 3rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, how the expected decision by the court would upend reproductive rights for women around the country and the nation's political situation. The thing that we've been saying will happen for at least a decade, to see it written down in plain language. Also this hour, why the Javelin anti-tank missile has emerged as one of the key weapons for Ukrainians fighting off the Russian invasion. And the midterm primaries underway today in Ohio and Indiana. It's 401. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court confirms a leaked draft of a ruling that would upend the country's abortion laws is real. Chief Justice John Roberts says the draft is not the court's final position. He says the leak won't affect the court's work. But as he describes it, the leak was an egregious breach of trust and betrayal of the confidences of the court. President Biden says every other decision rooted in privacy will be thrown into question if Roe v. Wade is overturned. If the rationale of the decision as released were to be sustained, a whole range of rights are in question. A whole range of rights. And the idea we're letting the states make those decisions, localities make those decisions, would be a fundamental shift in what we've done. Meanwhile, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell calls a leak a toxic stunt to stir up an inappropriate pressure campaign to sway an outcome. Never before, never before in modern history has an internal draft been leaked to the public while the justices were still deciding a case. Never before. Whoever committed this lawless act knew exactly what it could bring about. Protesters have been gathering at the Supreme Court all day to respond to the leaked draft opinion. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben is there. Demonstrators both in support of and opposing abortion rights have been here since the morning and the crowd has grown steadily through the day. Speakers from abortion rights activist groups have been amping up the crowd, as have lawmakers including Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who pushed for eliminating the filibuster and passing a law codifying abortion rights. We will take this fight to the state houses and we will take this fight to the U.S. Congress right across the street. The group Women's March, which supports abortion rights, has called for protests at 5 p.m. local time in cities nationwide. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, in front of the Supreme Court building. Policymakers from the Federal Reserve are meeting in Washington, D.C. NPR Scott Horsley reports are expected to make it more expensive to borrow money in an effort to combat the highest inflation since the early 1980s. The Fed is widely expected to boost interest rates by half a percentage point. When its meeting wraps up tomorrow, that would be the first half-point increase in more than two decades, a sign of the urgency with which the central bank is now treating inflation. Additional rate hikes are expected to follow in the coming months. The Fed's also planning to start gradually reducing its collection of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. The yield on 10-year treasuries briefly topped 3% on Monday for the first time since 2018. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closes up 67 points, ending the day at 33,128. The Nasdaq was up 27, S&P rose 20. 
This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Several local political figures are decrying what may lie ahead regarding abortion rights following the leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Mayor Michelle Wu, U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins, and legislative leaders gathered together today outside the statehouse. WBUR Steve Brown was there as well. The overall message was that while Massachusetts laws preserve abortion rights in the Bay State, regardless of the ultimate ruling, the leaked draft decision is a warning that steps must be taken to ensure people in other states can still access safe health care, which includes access to abortion. Congresswoman Catherine Clark cautions other rights are also under threat. They will come for LGBTQ communities, communities of color, for immigrant communities. They will come because they have told us they will. This is not paranoia. Look at the votes of the GOP in state houses and Congress and the U.S. Senate. Clark stressed the importance of voting this November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Meantime, the group Massachusetts Citizens for Life says the draft ruling would represent an historic win for it and other opponents of abortion. However, it says more work must be done because abortion would still be available in parts of the country if the ruling becomes final. A special election's underway in parts of Boston today. Gabrielle Coletta and Tanya Del Rio are running to replace Lydia Edwards on the city council. Edwards left the council to become a state senator. So far, only a little more than 5% of eligible voters have cast ballots. The state pension fund's holdings in Russian interests have cratered in value. Earlier this year, lawmakers voted to require Massachusetts to divest from those funds. At that time, the board overseeing the pension funds estimated the state had about $140 million with exposure to Russia. Its executive director says that has fallen to less than $10 million because of the war and global market disruption. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy skies tonight. Chance of showers in the early morning hours with lows in the upper 40s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Capital One, offering their new class of premium travel card. Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. The right to an abortion in the United States appears closer than ever to being eliminated. Last night, shortly after 8 o'clock, Politico published a leaked draft of a majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito that would overturn Roe versus Wade. As the news spread, a crowd started to form outside the Supreme Court. Juliet Moltz was among the first people to show up. She plopped herself cross-legged in front of the marble steps. She said she had to come. Because a week ago I had a pregnancy scare. Because a week ago I thought I, I might be pregnant and I didn't know what to do and I'm not. But to hear this a moment later, I was terrified. Terrified for herself, she said, and for anyone who might soon be unable to end an unwanted pregnancy. The court's draft ruling, if it becomes final, would not ban abortion nationwide. It would leave that up to each state. Many Republican-led states are ready to enact their own bans. Morgan McFarland's voice quivered at that prospect. I have friends that aren't in blue states that are at risk right now, and I don't think that they deserve to be at any greater risk than I do just because of where they live. They still live in the United States. 
Kira Thornton said she has been dreading this moment, but also preparing for it. I just got an IUD because I was scared that this was going to happen so that I could be protected for five more years, and I was right. Most of the hundreds of people who flocked to the court steps last night were abortion supporters. But abortion opponents also came. Katrina Fee came with a group of classmates. I came out here because it is so important that the nation see that there are young people like me across America that are uh, so hopeful for the future of this country now that the court has potentially decided to overturn Roe. Why does she feel so strongly about this? I was a triplet. My parents' doctors suggested that I be aborted for convenience. Thank God my parents chose life. Herb Garrity leads an anti-abortion group and said that if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, abortion opponents should start to focus in part on discouraging illegal abortions and on supporting mothers and their new babies. For so many pregnant people, they feel as though abortion is their only option, and there's nothing pro-choice about that. I hope that we can unite and work together to meet the needs of young families. Those needs need to be met in our communities. Anne Mesnikoff stood alone, quietly, nearby, thinking, she said, about her daughter and her disbelief that a right women have held for 50 years in this country seems on the brink of being snatched away. Uh, You know, it's a terrible moment to have the Supreme Court take away a woman's right to choose. And if that draft becomes the, the law, it has huge impacts across the country. If the decision to overturn Roe is ultimately handed down from the court, the political implications could be monumental. Last night's leak has already triggered a political earthquake. We're joined now by NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason, NPR's Kelsey Snell on Capitol Hill, and NPR's Sarah McCammon, who covers abortion. Welcome to all of you. Hello. Happy to be here. Mara, let's start with you. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts today confirmed that this draft decision uh, was authentic. He said it is not final. President Biden had a pretty strong reaction after uh, the Chief Justice announced that. He called this draft decision uh, radical before uh, taking off in Air Force One today. If the rationale of the decision as released were to be sustained, a whole range of rights are in question. A whole range of rights. And the idea we're letting the states make those decisions, localities make those decisions, would be a fundamental shift in what we've done. What do you make of that reaction, Mara? Well, he talked about two things. What's at stake, meaning all these other things that would fall under the right to privacy, which that draft questioned, uh, the right to marry, uh, gay marriage, the right to use contraception. That would also be uh, in the balance. So the president was focusing on what's at stake other than just the right to abortion. And then he also talked about the remedy. He said it's up to voters to elect pro-abortion rights legislators at every level, Senate, House, also state legislatures. And this is the big question for Democrats. They've never been seized with the importance of the courts like conservatives have who have focused for 50 years on overturning Roe. Uh, Democrats haven't done that. And now the question is, does this ruling, assuming it becomes a ruling, have a boomerang effect? Will liberal voters feel like their rights are under threat? Will they be more energized to come out to vote? Or will this take a second or third place behind inflation, crime, and immigration as issues for the midterms? We don't know that yet. Well, Kelsey, now that Democrats in Congress know that this draft opinion could become final in the coming months, uh, do they have any plans to act on abortion protections? Well, the vast majority of them said they're outraged. They say these are the kinds of actions Democrats have warned voters could happen since way back during the 2016 presidential election. 
election when Republicans held up former President Obama's nominee to replace Justice Antonin Scalia after he died. You know, Democrats generally promised today to to fight to protect Roe, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promised that there will be votes even if they fail. It's a different world now. The tectonic plates of our politics on women's choice and on rights in general are changing. Every senator now under the real glare of Roe v. Wade being repealed by the courts is going to have to show which side they're on. But, you know, in reality, Democrats do not have the votes to pass federal abortion protections right now. And putting people on the record might be the best they can hope for. They would need either 60 votes to overcome a filibuster or a feasible plan to end the filibuster. I will note that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia told reporters today that he still supports the filibuster. Well, that's Democrats. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, two Republican senators, though, Kelsey, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine. They have both supported abortion rights in the past. Right. And they both said the decision would be inconsistent with what they were told by justices during their confirmation processes. Collins specifically named Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Murkowski went further and she told a group of reporters that a draft decision rocked her confidence in the court. A little bit later, she added this. It was not the direction that I believed that the court would take based on statements that have been made about Roe being settled and being precedent. Now, you know, they both pointed to a narrow bill that they've supported um, and sponsored that talks about prohibiting states from imposing what they call an undue burden on the ability of a woman to obtain an abortion. But that would allow states to impose some restrictions still. And, you know, that plan might win their support. But two Republicans and 48 or 50 Democrats still does not equal the 60 votes they would need for the bill to pass. Sarah McCammon, I'd like to bring you in here. You're going to be reporting on this elsewhere in the program, but briefly, what are abortion rights advocates saying about this Supreme Court leak? Well, as you might expect, even though this was somewhat expected, they're saying it's devastating, especially for people who already struggle to get access to abortion disproportionately, people of color, people in rural areas. Um, But they are expressing some optimism that this could galvanize Democratic voters in the 2022 midterms, as well as in 24. Uh, Mini Temaraju, president of NARA Pro-Choice America, believes that this is going to be a wake-up call, as she put it, that will turn out progressive voters even more than, for example, after the 2016 election, which did lead to a blue wave in 2018. We are seeing a ton of support and energy from our advocates, our donors, our voters, our volunteers to mobilize. Sometimes you need that extra push. And unfortunately, as horrific as this is, uh, this is probably it. And we're going to invest significantly to make it so. And on that note, a coalition of major reproductive rights groups, including NARAL, announced that they're spending $150 million this year toward voter mobilization efforts. They're targeting congressional races, of course, along with governor's races, given the increasing importance of state legislation. And what about abortion opponents, uh, Sarah? They've, they've been wanting to overturn Roe versus Wade for a long time. If the court does, in fact, follow through, where do they go from here? Well, they've been a little cautious in their response, given that this is a leaked draft, but this has been a decades-long goal, if this holds. A coalition largely made up of conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants have been working strategically toward this goal at every level of government for decades, trying to pass state laws that could soon ban most abortions in about half of U.S. states. 
I talked to Kristen Hawkins with Students for Life today. She says her group is working to pass more early abortion bans around six weeks or earlier. We need to be talking about a law that bans abortions when children can children's heart begin to be detected or laws that protect life at conception. And her group and others are working toward the idea of a national abortion ban. That, of course, would take a majority in Congress as well as the White House, but it is one of their longer-term goals. Kelsey, is that something that Republicans in Congress are, are talking about? The Republicans I talked to today, and I talked to many, they really didn't engage with the substance of the decision or discuss whether they would go further to pass federal abortion restrictions if they do take majorities in the House and the Senate. You know, instead, they mostly focused on the leaker. Uh, they called for an investigation, and some called for eventual prosecution of the leaker. I should point out, though, that... You know, polls have consistently shown that a majority of Americans oppose overturning Roe versus Wade. The latest Gallup data has 58 percent of Americans against overturning it. And an NPR poll last month gave Republicans a broad advantage in the midterms, but also indicated that voters feel Democrats would do a better job on the issue of abortion by 11 points. Mara, a quick final word goes to you. The Supreme court prides itself on the idea that it's not a political body. So what are the implications of the court making such a major ruling and potentially breaking with public opinion on an issue that stirs up such strong feelings? Well, historically, the Supreme Court has been on the opposite side of majority public opinion many, many times. But what's happening now is that there's a much bigger debate that's starting. A majority of the Supreme Court justices were appointed by presidents who became president despite losing the popular vote. And the senators who confirmed some of those justices represented a minority of Americans. So we're moving from a system where the founders wanted uh, minority party rights to be protected to a system that is looking a lot more like minority rule, whether it's extreme gerrymandering or the Senate structure or the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. And the big question is, uh, does the majority of Americans want this to continue or not? NPR's Mara Eliason, Sarah McCammon, and Kelsey Snell. Thanks to all of you. This is WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why Javelin anti-tank missiles have become a huge part of American aid to Ukraine with President Biden calling for more shipments of the weapons to Ukrainian soldiers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities. The Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. In business news, shares of Biogen saw a little change today after news that the company's CEO plans to step down. Michelle Vonat has led the company since 2016 and led Biogen's drive to develop its controversial Alzheimer's treatment. Biogen also says it's stepping back from extensive marketing of that treatment as part of a $1 billion cost-saving plan. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day slightly higher. The Dow was up 67 points at 33,128. Nasdaq rose 27 points to 12,563. And the S&P 500 gained 20 points to end the day at 4,175. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at ClarkLiving.com. And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Being Maholi, Portraits as Resistance, on view through May 8th, 
More at GardnerMuseum.org. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows drop into the upper 40s with showers moving in after midnight. Showers stick around for much of the day tomorrow with patchy fog in the morning. Highs in the upper 50s under cloudy skies. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. President Biden made the case today for billions of dollars of new spending for Ukraine. He toured an Alabama factory that makes javelins. He says the missile has become very popular. They've been so important. There's even a story about Ukrainian parents naming their children, not a joke. Their newborn child, javelin or javelina. Earlier today, I spoke with Mark Kansian about this weapon. He's a retired Marine colonel and an expert on military spending. And first, I asked him to describe it for us. The Javelin is the top end of the infantry anti-tank weapons. It is a fire-and-forget weapon. That is, you lock it onto the target, you pull the trigger, the missile fires, and it goes off on its own. It will home in on the target. The shooter can then go hide. It has a long range, up to... 4,000, a little more than 4,000 meters. And it also has a top attack capability. In other words, it can it can go straight at a target or it can go up in the air and come down on top of a target. That's important because tanks have much thinner armor on top, so they're much more vulnerable. It seems like kind of the go-to weapon of this war. Has it been that way in conflicts for a while or is there something unique about Russia's invasion of Ukraine that makes it particularly suited to this conflict? Well, the javelin has become the iconic weapon of the war. It caught everyone's imagination. You know, there's Saint uh, Javelin, there are javelin songs. The reason I think it caught people's attention is because the Russians have a very mechanized uh, military. They've got lots of armored vehicles. The Ukrainians needed as many anti-tank weapons as they could get. So we supplied these kinds of weapons early on in the conflict, and that was critical in allowing the Ukrainians, who were mostly light infantry, to hold back these uh, Russian armored formations. Hmm. So these are particularly good for perhaps an overpowered military with less heavy equipment to take on a bigger, heavier, more armored uh, military like Russia's. They are. And they're also very good for a military that may not be all that well trained because it doesn't take very long to learn how to use it. It is important to note that Javelin's only one of many kinds of anti-tank weapons that have been provided to the Ukrainians. There's another one that's called NLAW. It's also guided. It's not quite as sophisticated. It's been provided in much larger numbers. So many of the attacks we're seeing probably came from other kinds of uh, anti-tank weapons, but the Javelins are the most capable, and they've certainly caught the public's imagination. And in just a couple of months, the U.S. has already sent 5,500 javelins to Ukraine. Biden is now asking Congress for another $33 billion in aid to Ukraine, $20 billion of which is for military aid. Any guess how big a chunk of that is to purchase javelins specifically? I think we can guess, and the answer, unfortunately, is zero. Hmm. And the reason is that we've given about a third of our inventory to Ukraine already. The stocks are getting low. 
there's some risk on certain U.S. war plans that there may not be enough for our own purposes. I think what you're going to see is that the United States will provide a broad spectrum of weapons to Ukraine, including some anti-tank weapons, just not the Javelin in particular. So these can't just be churned out like pizzas. If they are so essential to the Ukrainian war effort, what does that mean if the U.S. has kind of gone through the stockpile that it's comfortable sharing already? Yes, production is a big problem. We've provided, as you say, over 5,500 javelins to Ukraine. The United States has been producing about six or 800 a year. So you can do the math and figure out how long it would take to replace those missiles. Now we can ramp up production. That takes time. It's also important to note that they're moving into a different phase of the conflict, providing different kinds of equipment now. We're providing uh, artillery, for example, armored vehicles. So the aid package is going to be uh, broader than it has been uh, before. Mark Kansian is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me on the show. And now the story of an artist from El Salvador who has New Yorkers shaking, literally. Guadalupe Maravilla works with sounds, vibrations, and their effect on the body. The artist has a new show at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and that's where NPR's Jasmine Garst caught up with him. Somewhere in Brooklyn, the walls and floors vibrate with noise. Maravilla says it's the same frequency as the sound the sun makes. It's as gorgeous as it is eerie. This is part of artist Guadalupe Maravilla's new exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. As he explains it, his whole life has been about this duality between horror and beauty. He grew up in El Salvador in the 70s and 80s. The country was being consumed by a bloody civil war. When he was eight, his family hired coyotes, human smugglers, to take him to the U.S. From El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, all the way through Mexico, and eventually I made it to Tijuana, and eventually I crossed. He drew a lot on the road. He would play a children's game from El Salvador called Tripachuca with other migrants. Players draw lines on a paper that can never cross. The end result looks like a labyrinth. As a ritual, before he opens an exhibit, Maravilla plays a giant game of Tripachuca at the museum with another immigrant. He says there's something therapeutic about it. Confronting trauma when one is red is part of the healing process. Maravilla's art is all about the trauma of displacement. In this latest exhibit, he decided to showcase ancient Mayan sculptures that belong to the Brooklyn Museum. I feel that these objects are displaced. They don't belong here. They belong in Central America museums. Also featured are his breathtaking sculptures called disease throwers, massive structures made of materials like volcanic ash and sea conches. Maravilla often travels back to El Salvador and retraces the journey he made as a child, buying and gathering objects along the way. That chicken I picked up somewhere in Mexico, uh, that rose also in Mexico, these corn that you see here made out of volcanic rock, they were made in Mexico. The sculpture looks like mythological beings. I'm really influenced by my mythology. Right? And if you think about their gods or deities, they're, they're very frightening looking. But at the end, they're the ancestors, they're the protectors. Attached to them are gongs, which Maravilla pounds and scratches, making sounds that bring them trembling to life.
Maravilla began exploring sounds during his own health crisis. He says the trauma he experienced as a child had a major impact on his well-being. Years after arriving in the U.S., he developed a rare form of cancer. In addition to chemotherapy, he sought spiritual healers, shamans. Sound as medicine is nothing new. Tibetan throat singers, they use vibration to heal. The flutes, the singing of the shamans in South America and all indigenous cultures also use sound as medicine. He's known for creating sound baths in which people are exposed to a flood of sound. He spends a lot of time performing these rituals with undocumented communities and cancer patients. At one of them, which I was allowed to attend but not record, people lay on the floor. The vibrations were completely overpowering. My body felt like it was levitating. It was otherworldly. Like much of Maravilla's life and work, it was at times frightful but also breathtakingly beautiful. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, how abortion rights advocates are responding to the draft Supreme Court decision that likely means an end to Roe versus Wade. Also, how the U.S. plans to use its presidency of the U.N. Security Council to highlight food insecurity brought on by Russia's war in Ukraine. That's coming up. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy skies tonight. Chance of showers in the early morning hours with lows in the upper 40s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 9th to 15th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And BU's Party School of Global Studies, educating global leaders in international relations. Apply today at bu.edu slash school. I'm Tiziana Deering, and I want to share a little something with you. I am happier and better when I feel connected to my community. Radio Boston does that. Our show is where the town hall meets the kitchen table. And starting Monday morning, we go live at 11 a.m. Join me for Radio Boston weekdays at 11 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better together. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The Supreme Court confirmed the authenticity of a leaked draft opinion, which would overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Chief Justice John Roberts is directing the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. Justice Roberts says the leaked document is authentic, but doesn't represent a decision by the court or the final position of any members on the issues in the case. In a statement, Roberts called the leak an egregious breach of trust that was intended to undermine the integrity of the court's operations. The draft opinion, written by Justice Samuel Alito, 
Veto would overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that guaranteed the constitutional right to an abortion. As currently written, the draft opinion would not ban abortion nationwide, but allow individual states to ban or restrict the procedure. A final decision isn't expected to be handed down until late June or early July. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. In Ukraine, Russia fired rockets on a steel plant in Mariupol where thousands are still trapped in basement tunnels after a ceasefire broke down, this despite a U.N.-brokered evacuation. Meanwhile, President Biden visited a Lockheed Martin weapons plant in Alabama today, urging Congress to quickly pass his $33 billion Ukraine aid bill. This fight is not going to be cheap, but caving to aggression would even be more costly. We either back the Ukrainian people as they defend their country or we stand by as Russia continues its atrocities and aggression. I know what the answer is, and I think you all do too. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he expects bipartisan support for the new aid package. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 67, NASDAQ up 27, S&P 500 up 20. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the Senate must eliminate the filibuster and pass legislation to preserve abortion rights. She spoke outside the Supreme Court today after the leak of a draft opinion that suggests the justices are poised to overturn Roe v. Wade and allow states to impose restrictions or even bans on abortion. Well, I am here because I am angry. And I am here because the United States Congress can change all of this. Yes, it Warren says if the court's final decision overturns Roe, it will especially hurt women of color, those with lower incomes, and victims of abuse. Meantime, local opponents of abortion rights say the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned will not have a big impact locally. Catholic Action League Massachusetts Executive Director C.J. Doyle says if the draft ruling becomes final, the law would revert to before Roe. All that's going to happen is we're going to go back to 1973, where some states like Massachusetts, abortion will remain legal. In other states, like perhaps Louisiana, it will, uh, it will remain, it will become illegal. Doyle says he suspects the release of the draft decision was intended to ignite controversy in an attempt to put pressure on justices before a final vote is taken. States reached settlements with five nursing homes accused of patient neglect, insufficient staff training, and inadequate care for residents. State Attorney General Maura Healy says the cases involved preventable harm and, in some cases, the deaths of residents. The facilities in New Bedford, Fall River, Kingston, and Agawam will implement new staff training and pay a total of a quarter million dollars. More than half will go to a fund to improve long-term care facilities. Former New England Patriots lineman Matt Light has lost his bid to win a seat on the Foxborough School Board. He finished third in a four-way race for two open seats on the committee yesterday. Light was critical of school mask mandates earlier in the pandemic. He says he stopped campaigning a week before the election because he was tired of personal attacks. In sports, Celtics will play game two against the Milwaukee Bucks tonight. Red Sox start a three-game set against the LA Angels over at Fenway. And the Bruins are off. They'll play game two against the Carolina Hurricanes tomorrow. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with lows in the upper 40s, showers after midnight. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And Amari Shapiro. We now know that a leaked draft of a Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade is authentic. Chief Justice Roberts confirmed that today after Politico published the document. He noted that it's not a final opinion, but if it holds, it would allow states to prohibit abortion. NPR correspondent Sarah McCammon covers reproductive rights and joins us again. Hi, hi Sarah. Hi, Ari. As we said, this opinion is a draft, but it does give us a window into what the justices are thinking. Tell us about what you've learned so far. Right. I mean, it appears to confirm months of predictions from legal experts and others really across the political spectrum that the court was poised to seriously roll back abortion rights, if not overturn Roe v. Wade altogether. Just by agreeing to take this case, the justices appeared to signal that it is a challenge to a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks, so before viability. Chief Justice John Roberts is thought to favor a more incremental approach to change. He asked some questions last fall during the oral arguments that suggested he might have been looking for a way to uphold the Mississippi law without entirely overturning Roe. But Michelle Bratcher Goodwin, a law professor at the University of California, Irvine, says the draft opinion would overturn Roe in one fell swoop. It is an opinion that dismantles Roe full scale, not the dismantling by a thousand strikes. It is a very strong punch to the gut of that opinion. And as a result, according to some estimates, about half of states may be poised to ban abortion under such a decision. And so as the news sinks in today, what are advocates on both sides telling you? Well, abortion rights opponents are pleased, as you might expect, and hoping that this sticks. This is what they've been working toward at every level of government for decades. Steve Aiden with Americans United for Life says his group is asking states to actually come back and call special sessions to pass legislation banning abortion in response to this decision. If this opinion holds, it means that the question of abortion has been returned to where it belongs to the states and the people. And that will result in a vigorous uh, political debate in a place where it belongs, in the state houses. Now, abortion rights advocates say this will be disastrous for low-income people, people of color, and others who are disproportionately affected by abortion restrictions. And they're warning that overturning long-standing precedent could have ramifications for other rights that are protected under Supreme Court decisions, such as a right to contraception, same-sex marriage. And that's a worry that we heard President Biden raise today. So what is the next move for abortion rights advocates? Well, polls suggest that a majority of Americans want Roe to remain in effect and support abortion rights in most cases. So advocates are hoping this will galvanize voters to turn out for the midterm elections. Fatima Goss-Graves is with the National Women's Law Center. We have been warning for decades about what is happening in this country in terms of abortion access and the attack on Roe. I think this draft opinion leaked last night is making it real for people. 
NARAL, Pro-Choice America, and other groups, Ari, are investing $150 million on the midterms focusing on battleground states. And even as many states have rushed to pass restrictions on abortion, we're also seeing some taking steps to expand abortion access. But increasingly, the way the country seems to be going is toward a very patchwork set of abortion policies. And Pierre Sarah McCammon, thank you very much. Thank you. Primary election season begins in earnest today as voters head to the polls in Ohio and Indiana. There are a number of competitive House races and Ohio's governor faces challengers, but the marquee contest is for an open U.S. Senate seat in Ohio. Ohio is where we find NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne. Hey, Don. Hey there. So where are you exactly? I'm in Cincinnati, which is where J.D. Vance is holding his election night watch party. You might remember him. He's the author of the memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. And I'm with Vance because he may emerge out of a very competitive Republican Senate primary after he received the endorsement of former President Trump. Trump came to Ohio a couple of weeks ago to stump for Vance and some candidates down ballot. He fights like crazy and he loves Ohio and he frankly, he's a great Buckeye. So what I'd like to do is ask J.D. Vance, come forward. I want to pick somebody that's going to win. So that was the magic moment for Vance. Uh, But the endorsement has rubbed some Republican sources I have here in Ohio the wrong way, particularly Tea Party folks, uh, because Vance has harshly criticized Trump over the over the years, going back to 2016. So many in the many uh, Republican voters in the state don't really trust his conservative credentials. Uh, Vance, uh, though, says he was wrong when he criticized Trump. He's offered like a thousand mea culpas. Mm. And he now says Trump was the best president of his lifetime. Uh, Who do some of those uh, other Republicans prefer? Who, Who else is on the ballot? Well, there are other Republicans who wanted Trump's endorsement very badly and are campaigning kind of as many Trumps. There's Josh Mandel, a former state treasurer. This is actually his third Senate run, and he has really campaigned in that combative Trump mold. There's also Mike Gibbons, an investment banker who's poured millions into the race. There's James Timken, uh, the former state party chair. And one candidate, a Republican, who has not sought Trump's approval is State Senator Matt Dolan. He's a Trump supporter, but he also uh, rejects Trump's lies about the 2020 election being stolen. So he's got a bit of a different profile. Here he is last night talking in Columbus about how he sees the race. And in this race, we've seen my opponents do a lot of insulting, a lot of name calling, a lot of near fist fights. Well, haven't we seen enough of that in Washington? And what about the Democratic side, Don? Uh, Congressman Tim Ryan is expected to win. He's by far the highest profile candidate. He's trying to follow the example of Sherrod Brown, who is Ohio's other Ohio senator, a Democrat who focuses really closely on economic issues. I've been with Ryan out on the campaign trail. He's gone all over the state, including into Trump country, those conservative red parts of the state, always stressing uh, that uh, that uh, that. Ohioans really need somebody who's going to fight for them. He often includes very harsh words for China. Uh, But today he was talking about abortion, like a lot of Democrats have been, uh, following that leaked draft opinion that could indicate Roe v. Wade being struck down. Here's Ryan. It's, you know, significant. And, you know, this is why these elections are really, really important, because, uh, you know, you can lose your rights in the blink of an eye. 
So that's Tim Ryan. And while that, uh, you know, tentative ruling could drive Democratic-based voters, Ryan really has been planning to stick very closely to economic issues, away from culture issues, to try to appeal to an electorate in a state that has turned more conservative, more red in recent years. Well, Don, you mentioned Trump earlier. Uh, He won Ohio pretty easily twice. You know, briefly, what does that say about Democrats' chances? Uh, It's going to be a tough fight for a Democrat. Uh, Is it winnable? Possibly, but it's uphill. That's Don Gagne. Thanks so much, Don. A pleasure. And of course, this is just one race we're watching tonight in Ohio and Indiana. For more races to keep an eye on and for live updating results tonight, head to NPR.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This month, the U.S. is chairing the United Nations Security Council. It is planning to keep the spotlight on Russia's war in Ukraine, but also address something on the minds of many nations around the world, how the war is affecting the price of food. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Even countries unwilling to criticize Russia's war in Ukraine are worried about the ripple effects, so the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, plans to focus on that. Ukraine used to be a breadbasket for the developing world. But since Russia blocked crucial ports and destroyed civilian infrastructure and grain silos, desperate hunger situations in Africa and the Middle East are getting even more dire. She laid out the U.S. priorities at the U.N. today. Anjali Dayal, a U.N. watcher who teaches international politics at Fordham University, says this focus makes sense. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both the World Food Program and the FAO noted that uh, this was likely to be the most food insecure year on record globally. Dial says much of the world depends on food, fertilizer, and agricultural supplies that come out of Russia and Ukraine. The war in Ukraine, essentially, that is a crisis that the most vulnerable people in the world will pay for in lost calories and in lost agricultural production. And the U.S. needs to be seen as doing something about that, says Richard Gowan, who tracks the U.N. for the International Crisis Group. The key goal for the U.S. is to show that it is the big power that can manage the global food crisis. And it's not going to be China or Russia that leads the way in in dealing with these global shocks. The U.S. also wants to keep up the pressure on Russia. The U.S. ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says she's had some success in the Security Council on that. Russia is isolated in the Security Council. And every time we have a discussion in the Security Council as it relates to Russia, they are on the defensive. And we will continue to keep them on the uh, defensive until they end uh, their brutal attack on the Ukrainian people. But in the General Assembly, many countries abstained from a vote condemning Russia's war. Thomas Greenfield says she spent a lot of time talking to African diplomats to reassure them this is not a war between the U.S. and Russia. She says this is about one country, Russia, violating the U.N. charter. Gowan of the International Crisis Group says the U.S. has a balancing act at the U.N. It's a place where the big powers can come even during periods of intense crisis to try and talk about their remaining common interests. And the U.S. is trying to juggle keeping pressure on Russia at the U.N. with 
finding a minimum of common ground on on other concerns, be it Libya or Somalia. The Security Council debate on global food security is set for May 19th. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This afternoon on Consider This, the right to an abortion in the United States appears closer than ever to being eliminated. Hear reactions to the leaked draft of the Supreme Court decision that could overturn Roe v. Wade. NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, helps you make sense of the day on your schedule. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, the return of cheering to K-pop concerts in South Korea. Coming up in the next 10 minutes or so, the rare leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion and how it could alter the way the court functions in the years ahead. That and more coming up here on WBUR. Remember, learn more about how your food choices can help fight climate change and sign up for WBUR's newsletter, Cooked, the search for sustainable eats. Details at WBUR.org slash cooked. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of showers with lows in the upper 40s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com And WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com Will the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade? Americans react to a bombshell report suggesting the court might strike down the decision that legalized abortion in the U.S. We'll talk about the leaked opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito and published by Politico, although it's only a draft and subject to change already causing shockwaves. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. The Supreme Court leak that has galvanized the nation has also focused attention on how journalists cover the country's highest court. And it casts light on the Supreme Court's historic resistance to public scrutiny. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Adrian. So what do we know about how Politico broke this story? Well, we sure don't know much about how Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward broke the story for Politico last night. There's been a lot of speculation as to the source of it. They cited a person with knowledge. Uh, Many conservatives took to Twitter and airwaves to denounce the leak and claimed it came from obviously a clerk from a liberal justice or even perhaps one of the liberal justices, perhaps Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor. And the idea would be 
that they wanted to stir protest and action by congressional Democrats. Then you saw this other pushback online claiming conservatives might be trying to leak this to lock right of center justices in place supporting what had been proposed. Editors simply cited what they called an extensive review process and said that they're confident of the authenticity of the draft. Well, people have been calling this leak unprecedented. Uh, but just how unusual is this? Well, let's let's call it rare, but not unique. And let's scroll a little bit back in history. Go back in this case, say to 1857, the Dred Scott decision, an infamous one and a terrible one, a blot on the Supreme Court's legacy. It, it held that enslaved people seeking their liberty could be legally pursued and recaptured by those who had owned them in states where slavery had actually been outlawed. That leaked out to the New York Tribune. Hmm. Uh, more recently, CBS revealed a key justice's thinking a few days before the Pentagon Papers case was decided in 1971. That was, of course, itself a landmark case about leaking. In 1977, our own Nina Totenberg here at NPR reported the court uh, was ruling on a key Watergate case ahead of its public release and what that ruling would be. And there have been several leaks since uh, in, in publications and in a slew of books. What's different about this case was that it was a leak of a full draft of what has been proposed as an actual ruling this far ahead of its release, which is expected perhaps in June. And this leak has been called an incredible breach of the court's deliberations. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said today that it will shatter the public's trust in the court. Why is that? Well, justices have argued over the decades and uh, from both parties that they have to operate effectively in private. And this draft is considered a work in progress. That is, it's an attempt to win support from other justices as well as a refinement of the thinking going into uh, the, the ultimate decision and ruling itself. As Polito pointed out, this decision not only could change a lot, but the majority could swing in an altogether different direction or a modified one. The court has always sought, I think, not only secrecy, but this idea of grandeur and inscrutability, almost like the Vatican. The court has been so secretive that only since COVID have they routinely shared audio tapes of arguments and the audio of decisions are still not released until months after the fact. And there's no video allowed in. Well, Politico seems clearly to have rejected this logic that the court's work is best done in private. Uh, why is that? Well, editors cited what they called a great public interest, and it's hard to think of issues that are have created more interest and more divisiveness in American social life than abortion. But let's also pull back a little bit. The Supreme Court is a branch of government. All branches of government, federal government, deserve journalistic accountability. If you think about Justice Clarence Thomas, he brushed off reports about his wife's links to the January 6th protests and to the siege of the Capitol. His allies have called that off limits. And Thomas has refused to recuse himself from cases involving that day. I, I'd say the Supreme Court should expect this form of journalistic accountability over time as people consider it to have become more politicized. And they should buckle up for more scrutiny, not less, especially on issues this charged. That's NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick. Thanks, David. You bet. It's been almost a year since the deadly condominium building collapsed in Surfside, Florida, that killed 98 people. And 11 months later, survivors are caught up in a bitter fight over money and how best to honor those who died. From member station WLRN in Miami, Veronica Zaragovia reports on efforts in court and in this Florida town to chart a path forward and bring back unity. Surfside's elected officials themselves didn't get along much after the collapse. Two months ago, voters replaced almost all of them, including the mayor. I will faithfully discharge the duties of mayor. The duties of mayor. On which I am about to enter. On which I'm about to enter. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. New Mayor Shlomo Danzinger asked people to stop the bickering. We came together and inspired the nation 
and the entire world. I'm asking the residents of Surfside to remember the unity and the bond that we shared during that time. A federal investigation is still underway to determine why the towering beachfront condominium collapsed. Deferred maintenance, flawed inspections, and faulty construction in the 40-year-old building may have all played a role. Now, at public meetings, debate continues about how to memorialize those who died. Again, Mayor Danzinger. Something tasteful with the names, um, so people understand what this site represents. The mock-up of a proposed banner had a line, 98 people lost their lives on June 24, 2021. But even that has led to anger from family members. I think it would be nicer to write 98 souls, precious souls, loved souls. Eileen Rosenberg's daughter, Malki Weiss, died in the collapse. So did Pablo Langesfeld's daughter, Nicole. Maybe to put our loved ones, human beings, maybe persons, but people, it's, I don't think it's the right word. From public meetings to the courthouse, people are showing how the pain is still raw. At a recent court hearing, Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Michael Hansman listened to their stories of the collapse. Everybody here welled up, including the court. After months of mediation, the judge accepted a proposed settlement of $83 million. It would go to the people who lost their condos but survived the collapse. That money is bittersweet for people still struggling to cope. Raisa Rodriguez had a unit on the ninth floor. I live with this every night when I go to sleep or I wake up. A lady saying, please help me, don't leave me like this. Rodriguez lived in the building for 18 years. Some of her very best friends died in the collapse. And she still wrestles with all of it. Despite the judge's approval of the $83 million settlement, it's not a done deal. The property still needs to be sold and has to fetch at least $120 million. That's what a developer in Dubai offered as an opening bid. It could sell for more at an auction soon. Until and unless that happens, there will not be one penny distributed to the condominium owners. The people whose family members died and filed wrongful death claims don't yet know how much they'll get from separate legal proceedings. Carlos Weber's family owned a unit on the first floor. He wanted to receive more in the settlement, but said everybody will gain if Florida tightens its building inspections. And hopefully the buildings will be safer. The Florida legislature adjourned this year without agreeing on how to improve condo safety. Lawmakers will return for a special session later this month, and this is among the topics they may consider. For NPR News, I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from your part-time controller, 
your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. It's WBUR. Coming up next, another hour of All Things Considered. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows drop into the upper 40s with showers moving in after midnight. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities. The Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. I'm investigative reporter Shannon Dooling, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our right to determine if and when and how to raise a family is in unprecedented jeopardy. Abortion rights advocates sound the alarm as the Supreme Court appears poised to strike down Roe versus Wade. It is Tuesday, May 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins coming up. The court's draft opinion and what conservative justices said about the case while hearing arguments. Also this hour, the new report showing the pandemic's taken a major toll on healthcare workers' mental health. COVID exposed so much about our public health system, and one of the things it exposed is that our public health care workers don't have the support they need. And the struggle for civilians in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk, where food and fuel are starting to run out. It's 501. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Both sides of the abortion debate represented outside the U.S. Supreme Court today after the leak of a draft opinion. The news the court is poised to overturn the 1973 high court decision legalizing abortion in the U.S., creating a furor. While emphasizing the opinion is not yet final, Chief Justice John Roberts confirmed the authenticity of the draft and is calling for an investigation amid comments from lawmakers and others. President Biden weighed in, calling it quite a radical decision if it were to hold. Here's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Biden told reporters if the leaked document becomes the decision of the court, it would put into doubt other Supreme Court decisions that expand the right to privacy, including challenges to contraception and same-sex marriage. Does this mean that in Florida they can decide they're going to pass a law saying that same-sex marriage is not permissible? It's against the law in Florida? If the Supreme Court ruling in this case goes against Roe, it would mean abortion access is no longer federally protected. Abortion rights would instead become a state-by-state issue, with some states protecting access, while others would likely ban the procedure. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Russia fired another wave of missiles at cities across Ukraine today. In Lviv, a city crowded with people fleeing Russia's invasion. Rockets hit electrical substations, causing power outages. More from NPR's Brian Mann. 
Explosions were heard across central and western Ukraine, though officials say some of the blasts were the sound of anti-air defenses firing. Several Russian missiles hit Lviv, sending up plumes of fire and smoke, damaging the city's electrical grid and disrupting the water supply. Local media report rockets hitting railway stations, causing delays for train travel. For weeks, the Russian military has fired rockets and cruise missiles, often hitting residential buildings and killing civilians. The Russian military says it's trying to hit strategic targets, including warehouses and factories, hoping to cripple Ukraine's defenses. Brian Mann, NPR News, Odessa. Wall Street's top cop will allocate more resources to police cryptocurrency. NPR's David Gurr reports as part of the SEC's plans to rein in digital assets. The SEC is expanding the cyber unit in its Division of Enforcement. Going forward, it'll focus on crypto assets and cybersecurity. The commission says it plans to fill 20 new positions. It'll hire new staff attorneys and fraud analysts at its headquarters and in offices across the country. In a statement, SEC Chair Gary Gensler says the regulator will be better equipped to police wrongdoing in the crypto markets. The SEC has already brought dozens of enforcement actions related to crypto, and the SEC and the administration have also indicated more rules are on the way. David Gura, NPR News. New York. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 67 points. The Nasdaq closed up 27 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. More now on the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. While Roe is still law, local reproductive health care providers say they are already treating and hearing from women outside Massachusetts seeking assistance with an abortion. Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts President Dr. Jennifer Childs Roshak says most are coming from southern states that have restricted abortion in recent years. We have seen patients from other states already. We are getting incoming calls from other states, from patients who are living in these deep red states. We've taken care of patients from Texas in particular in both our Springfield and Boston offices. Childs Roshak says her organization will need additional funding to care for out-of-state patients and cover transportation costs to Massachusetts. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the Senate should eliminate the filibuster and pass abortion rights protections in response to the leak of that Supreme Court draft opinion. Markey tells abortion rights supporters today Congress should move to increase the number of justices on the court as well to avoid what he calls partisan court rulings. Expanding the Supreme Court is not simply a position of principle anymore. It is now a matter of practical need. Opponents of abortion rights, including Massachusetts Citizens for Life, say they are pleased by the potential of Roe being overturned, but say their work must continue because abortion would still be legal in many states, including Massachusetts. Boston police are investigating after bullets were found today at Boston Latin Academy in Roxbury. It is the second time in less than a week that ammunition was found at a public school in Boston. Investigators say they found the bullets today after school was done for the day. Countdown's on for Massachusetts residents who want a so-called real ID. The Registry of Motor Vehicles is reminding people there is one year to go before the federal government will require a real ID or a passport to fly or enter certain federal buildings. People can get a compliant real ID or license at the RMV by providing some additional documentation beyond what is required for a traditional license. The registry says about 41 percent of licenses and IDs in Massachusetts are currently so-called real IDs. In the forecast, it will be mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of showers, lows in the upper 40s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. It's been more than 50 years since the Supreme Court established that there was a constitutional right to abortion in the case of Roe v. Wade. Now the court appears to be on the precipice of overturning that landmark ruling. A draft opinion that would strike down Roe was leaked to Politico last night. That opinion was written by Justice Samuel Alito, and the authenticity was confirmed today by Chief Justice John Roberts. He called the leak a betrayal and ordered an investigation. While not final, the potential decision is already having far-reaching implications, many of which we are discussing on the program today. At the Supreme Court, different groups of people have spent the day both protesting and cheering the likelihood of Roe being struck down. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben is in front of the court and joins us. Danielle, you've been there all day. What have you heard and seen? I've heard and seen a lot of very upset abortion rights advocates, as well as opponents here celebrating. You can hear a lot of those protesters probably right now. Uh, Both sides have been very vocal. Now, on the advocate side for abortion rights, the mood is not surprised. They saw this coming. A lot of people did. But they're still very sad and scared. Uh, One person is Robin Galbraith from Maryland. She has two adult children. Here's what she said. I would definitely have had an abortion when I was 40 if I got pregnant because it is a tremendous responsibility raising children. And, you know, I want to do it right. And I'm not going to bring children into the world that I wouldn't be able to care for properly. And really, the broad feeling among the abortion rights advocates is that they've been talking about this possibility since Trump was elected. They've been warning the country and someone should have done something. Now, this is only a draft opinion, but are the people you're speaking to today treating the ruling as though it's final? No. And that goes especially for people opposed to abortion rights who told me about their concerns that conservative justices might still get cold feet. One is Hokabed Torres. She came from California. She says she's happy, but she's cautious given that this information was leaked. We also want to celebrate, but we want the uh, justices to stay firm on their decision because we know that the reason the documents were leaked uh, was to try to pressure them to change their decision. Now, again, we don't know who leaked the decision or why, but this is one strand of the speculation about that. Now, lawmakers who support abortion rights and President Biden have spoken today about plans to maintain and expand reproductive rights through legislation. Are the advocates there who you're talking to who support abortion rights hopeful that that will actually happen? Sort of is the short answer. I mean, we've had lawmakers show up today, Democratic senators, including Klobuchar, Blumenthal, Markey, saying that they want to codify Roe v. Wade and eliminate the filibuster to do so. But advocates are skeptical, given that they just haven't seen action on this so far. And one is Renee Bracey Sherman. She's the founder of abortion rights group We Testify. We need to see all of the leadership of every pro-choice politician out there talking about what they are going to do because this is a crisis. This has been a national emergency. No, not in the United States. And if they consider themselves pro-choice leaders, they need to act like it. And look, the reality is Democrats don't have the votes in the Senate to do that. So unless they could blow up the filibuster or expand their majority this fall, both of which don't seem terribly likely, it's hard to see how this would happen. But we've also heard a lot of talk from Democrats that maybe this could be a wake-up call ahead of the November midterms. 
Sure. But, of course, if and when Roe is overturned, 13 states have trigger laws set to go into effect that would restrict abortion. So for Americans seeking abortions until then, November would be too late. Uh, Here's Robin Galbraith again saying that she is angry and that that is driving her ahead of November, though. I usually wake up at like 10 in the morning. I woke up at 5 to get ready and get over here. And I am dedicated to getting out the vote until November. I mean, this it has woken a volcano in me. I mean, I'm just livid. So it will energize some people, sure. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben at the Supreme Court. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Nina Totenberg has covered the court for decades and knows it better than anyone. And she's here now to walk us through what happened. Hi, Nina. Hi there. Nina, Chief Justice John Roberts weighed in on the leaked draft today. What did he say? Well, he confirmed the authenticity of the draft opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, though Roberts notes it does not represent the court's final position or even the final position of any justice. He said this was a singular betrayal of the court's confidences, and he said he's ordered the court martial to conduct an investigation to find out who's responsible. Now, as luck would have it, I had a long scheduled interview today with Justice Stephen Breyer at the Federal Judges Association meeting, and of course, I asked him about all of this. I got bupkis, zilch, nada. So <laughs> I think it's likely from here on, whatever the court does about this behind the scenes, and I think its options are pretty limited, whatever they do, we will not know about it. Well, as you mentioned, they presumably would like to find out who did this. They're investigating it. How many people in the court had access to this document? Well, compared to the Pentagon, not a lot, but enough. In addition to the justices, there are some 37 law clerks, plus professional staff, police, and all the folks who maintain the building. Uh, So if someone just took a copy or printed out a copy and sent it anonymously to Politico, It could be very tough to figure out who did this, and the marshal's office isn't isn't an investigative service. It's a protective service. Hmm. And then there's the the question of how to proceed from here. I I suppose the chief might suggest to his colleagues that they each designate a single law clerk and limit future drafts, at least in this case, to those nine clerks. But that's not how most of these chambers function. The law clerks are the justices' sounding boards, debaters, and I'm not at all sure that they would agree to that. Well, the legal world more broadly seems very upset by this leak, too. Um, Why is this such a big deal? Because it's a huge breach of trust. The justices operate like nine tiny little law firms, and they respect each other's confidences, and they trust not only their clerks, but other justices' clerks as well. This is a total betrayal, sort of like a partner in a marriage cheating on the other partner, except that it's never, ever happened like this before, at least going back over 100 years. Yes, there have been tiny leaks, like uh, about a changed vote, for instance, but even those leaks you can count on one hand. This was an entire draft opinion, 98 pages, 118 footnotes, with seeds planted all over the place to undo other precedents. Well, according to Politico, uh, all three of President Trump's nominees to the court seemed inclined to sign on to this draft opinion. So, so what are we to make of the fact that this draft opinion reverses a half century of law? 
you know that confirmation hearings have devolved into an exercise in futility, for the most part. Some nominees really don't tell you much, but I think it's fair to say that some other nominees have walked the line less artfully, to the point of being a bit misleading. Here, for example, is then-Judge Kavanaugh answering a question about Roe and the Court's other opinions on abortion. Senator, I um, said that it's settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court. And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe v. Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past uh, 45 years. And then there was then-Judge Gorsuch, who in a book he wrote about assisted suicide said that the intentional taking of human life by private persons is always wrong. Senator Durbin asked him how he could square that statement with legal abortion. The Supreme Court of the United States has held in Roe v. Wade that a fetus is not a person for purposes of the 14th Amendment. Do you accept that? That's the law of the land. I accept the law of the land, Senator, yes. And here's then Judge Barrett at her confirmation hearing. I don't have any agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law and decide cases as they come. So call it political, call it something else. But what this portends is not just an adjustment at the court, I think, but a seismic shift and a, perhaps a seismic shift in other ways as well. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Thanks, Nina. Thank you. In South Korea, concerts and sporting events came back this year with a caveat. To keep people from yelling coronaviruses into the air, no cheering was allowed. That meant baseball without crowds making noise or K-pop without fan chants. I think originally it was created by the fans to show the members and the group support during songs. But now a lot of groups actually do like fan chant guides so that you know exactly like what to say and when. That's Kayla Bulba. K-pop fans like her have dedicated scripts they chant together during specific songs. Here's the BTS Army, the supporters of the band BTS, chanting each member's name at a concert. And it's mostly so that like the fans can be involved in the performance, but it's also it also contributes to the atmosphere of like the overall concert. Bomba went to a few concerts earlier this year and there was lots of clapping and noisemakers, but it was like absolutely no uh, screaming, singing along or dancing or standing up. Then this past weekend, she got tickets to see the boy band Stray Kids. So I just got to the venue and there's so much going on. Like there's people taking pictures. There's people like running for freebies. It's like a whole free for all. And then there's people like trying to buy slogans and stuff. But other than that, there's just a lot of fans excited. Excited for merch and the music. And one more thing. Masks are still required, but the screaming ban has been lifted. And so cheering is back in Korea.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the struggles in Kramatorsk, Ukraine, as the eastern Ukrainian city struggles as it runs out of food and fuel. Coming up here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Summer Term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. In business news, Boston-based Fidelity is defending its move to let people invest in cryptocurrency in their retirement plans after pushback from regulators and consumer experts. Fidelity says it limits how much clients can invest into crypto while offering greater protections than consumers who invest on their own. Labor departments criticized allowing any crypto investments in retirement plans, saying they increase the risk of significant risks, fraud, and theft. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day slightly higher, and the Dow was up 67 points. NASDAQ rose 27, and the S&P 500 gained 20 points. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows dropping to the upper 40s with showers moving in after midnight. Showers stick around for much of the day tomorrow. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water since 1936. A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size. It comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. To eastern Ukraine now and the city of Kramatorsk, a Russian offensive in the region continues to drive civilians away. By some estimates, three-quarters of the population has fled. For those who remain, life is a daily struggle. The city is short on food and gas, and the destroyed buildings and frequent explosions remind residents that the Russian military is not far away. NPR's Tim Mack reports from near the front lines of the fighting. We were looking at a destroyed residential building when we met Maxim Kornienko. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, and he had alcohol on his breath. Here was a man who had lost almost everything, pouring his heart out to me and my interpreter. I'm walking around psychotic. I'm not in a good condition. Life brought us to this. He pointed out the shell of the building he used to live in. There's a rug dangling on his old balcony. It was thrown out of his apartment during a missile attack. We stood near trees destroyed by fire in what was once his yard, and what remains of his car, burnt to a crisp. Maxim and his mother refused to leave Krematorsk. They're now both living in his mother's apartment. Half of life we've been working for this apartment, so how can we abandon it now? Adding to the struggle of everyday life is finding enough to eat. Local officials say about 70% of the grocery stores are closed. Those that are open have little food left. 
Ta nu sup mai domavare tam borsh. I eat soup borsh what my mother cooks and then once in a while we get the humanitarian help. The aid provided by the local government is hardly enough to survive on. A long line of residents fights for position at a food distribution site in what was once a school. Among the people gossiping, shouting, griping, is Elena Dolgit. Elena and her mother had come by twice before, but were unable to get any food. Normally, Elena just sits at home with little to do but worry. She lost her job at a local factory the day after the invasion began in February. The ground fighting is happening a number of miles outside the city, and Elena does not think that Russian ground forces will make it into Kramatorsk itself. I pray to God every day and pray that everything will be all right, she told us. But most of all, she wants an end to the fighting. She wants peace. Her son is in Kharkiv, another region near the front lines. And she worries about him. She wants the war to end so her grandchildren can come visit. Right now, that's impossible. All day, there are explosions in and around the city. At night, the bombardment is accompanied by sharp flashes of light in the distance. We interviewed the mayor of Kramatorsk, Alexander Goncharenko, from his bomb shelter as air raid sirens blared outside. You could hear the explosions even from underground. And he says he's becoming emotionally numb to it. In one or two months, nobody from us will get some emotions because of this war. It was in this city that Russian missiles landed at the train station, killing 59 people and injuring 104 more, the mayor's office told me. The blasts caused mayhem among evacuees, thousands of whom had gathered to flee the violence in eastern Ukraine. Victoria Goncharenko, no relation to the mayor, was working in her shop just down the street. I saw many dead bodies. Where the rocket hit, there used to be a green tent. Volunteers were giving out tea, coffee and biscuits from there. At the tent, and they were covering bodies with it, with the green material. I saw a lot of toys, bloody toys. Victoria's shop sells, of all things, tombstones and artificial flowers to be left at graves. But ironically, during the war, business is way down. There are practically no customers left. She's alone with just the moments of that awful event. It was horrifying. We went down the street over there. The cars were burning, burned bodies, seeing all these corpses. It was very scary. She says when the war ends, she wants to rethink her business. I want to be selling living flowers, maybe bonsai trees, plants, stuff like that. She's confident of Ukrainian victory and the restoration of the city in peacetime. She predicts that when people come back to Kramatorsk, they'll want to see something beautiful. Tim Mack, NPR News, Ukraine. It was the blistering summer of 1992 in Dallas, Texas. Michael Bice had just graduated from college and he needed a job. He saw an ad in the paper for his local Gap store. You know, it was just seasonal sales. I needed something. Bice got the job, but he found something unexpected when he started. That very first day, immediately I was hit with the music. Rosala, love breakdown. 
that was the one that got me. Weiss is talking about the music that was playing over the speakers of that Dallas Gap store as the customers shopped. He had an ear for music, he was a DJ in college, but this carefully crafted mix of music was like nothing he'd heard before. You know, classic R&B, and then it's followed by modern pop song, and then followed by acid jazz, and then trip hop or something. That music opened up Bice's world, and that first job turned into 15 years at Gap. And so it's like I found a career that I probably wouldn't have stayed if it hadn't been as fun being there and listening. If it was just a drudgery, it would not have worked. I still have some of the best memories being in that store and learning how to do it all on my own. And I'm serious, those memories, the music brings all of it up. Vice would collect the paper playlists that were posted in his break room each month and in Gap break rooms all across the country. The mixes were curated by an outside company Gap had hired. But to Vice, they were special, not only because the music was good, they also represented what was happening beyond the doors of Gap stores. As the years went by, the tapes did seem to reflect what was going on in the country. There was a lot of experimentation at the beginning of the 90s. Then you could, I mean, literally feel the change on September 11th. 2001, it was very, very somber. And you know, that's how the country was, and we felt it. A career change and a move meant he lost that stash of lists until 2010, when he found... In the flap of a folder, there are about 24 Gap playlists. The hunt was on. Vice wanted to find every playlist from his years at Gap, 1992 to 2006. He started a blog where he posted the playlists he found and some that he simply remembered. In January of 2017, I had an email from a guy in California, and he said, I think I have what you need. That former employee had playlists from 1993 through 2000, and the responses are still rolling in. Spice only has a few incomplete years of music left to find. It's almost like doing a service because I have so many people tell me how much they enjoy it. And so, you know, even if I find 100% of everything I want, I'm, I'm always going to continue doing this. Michael Bice, elementary school computer teacher and former GAP employee. is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the worrying report showing just how much the COVID pandemic has taxed health care workers' mental health. Also, how Texas is responding to the news of a Supreme Court draft decision that could spell the end of Roe versus Wade. That's coming up. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of showers with lows in the upper 40s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. More showers. Highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Be inspired to simply be with the works of Zanella Maholi on view through May 8th. More at GardnerMuseum.org. And Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. 
I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Furious Senate Democrats vowed today to vote on legislation to protect abortion access for millions of people after the leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. But in a closely divided Congress, lawmakers who favor abortion rights are essentially powerless to prevent the unraveling of the landmark ruling. Chief Justice John Roberts says the draft, written by Justice Samuel Alito, is authentic, but stresses that it's a draft and not the final position, which is expected in a couple of months. And Pierre Sarah McCammon has more. Alito said the Constitution contains no right to an abortion, and so the states should be allowed to decide whether to allow abortion at all, and many are expected not to. Roberts has ordered an investigation into the leak. If this draft holds, it would overturn nearly 50 years of precedent concerning abortion rights. Former President Trump's business has settled a lawsuit alleging his inaugural committee improperly overpaid for event space in a hotel he owned at the time. And here's Ilya Meritz has more. Trump's 2017 inaugural committee paid to rent ballrooms in a hotel he owned. It's the first known time that's happened in U.S. history. It raised flags at the time. One planner sent an email to Trump's daughter Ivanka and others warning the fee was about double what it should be. Washington, D.C.'s attorney general sued, alleging the nonprofit committee, quote, allowed its funds to inure to the private benefit of the Trump entities. Now the committee and the Trump businesses will pay $750,000 to end the suit while denying any wrongdoing. Trump claimed the suit was politically motivated. This year, he completed the sale of his Washington, D.C. hotel. Ilya Meritz, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the close. The Dow up 67. The Nasdaq up 27. The S&P 500 up 20 points. That's up nearly a half percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Several local political figures are decrying what may lie ahead regarding abortion rights following the leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Mayor Michelle Wu, U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins, and legislative leaders gathered together today outside the Statehouse, and WBUR Steve Brown was there. The overall message was that while Massachusetts laws preserve abortion rights in the Bay State, regardless of the ultimate ruling, the leaked draft decision is a warning that steps must be taken to ensure people in other states can still access safe health care, which includes access to abortion. Congresswoman Catherine Clark cautions other rights are also under threat. They will come for LGBTQ communities, communities of color, for immigrant communities. They will come because they have told us they will. This is not paranoia. Look at the votes of the GOP in state houses and Congress and the U.S. Senate. Clark stressed the importance of voting this November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Meantime, the group Massachusetts Citizens for Life says the draft ruling would represent an historic win for it and other opponents of abortion. However, it says more work must be done because abortion would still be available in parts of the country if the ruling becomes final, including Massachusetts. 
Former Boston State Senator Diane Wilkerson is a step closer to running to reclaim her former seat. The Boston Elections Department says Wilkerson has returned the required nomination papers with signatures. Those signatures still need to be certified. Wilkerson pleaded guilty in 2010 to charges of attempted extortion and served 30 months in federal prison. Three other candidates are also in the running to replace Sonia Chang-Diaz, who is running for governor. The city of Boston is providing money to six organizations that help immigrant populations. Each will get $6,500 for mental health assistance. Somali Parents Advocacy Center for Education is one of the groups getting a so-called mini-grant. Its executive director, Asha Abdullahi, says many Somali families don't seek help because of the perceived stigma surrounding mental health issues, but she says that is changing. This is a good opportunity for us to start talking about the mental health. And I think our organization did a phenomenal job. Now, many parents are sharing and seeking for help for kids with disabilities. They are learning how to advocate. Abdullahi says the Advocacy Center will be opening a location in Nubian Square in two weeks. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In the forecast, it will be mostly cloudy skies tonight, lows dropping to the upper 40s with showers moving in after midnight. Those showers stick around for much of tomorrow. Patchy fog in the morning. Highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 54 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Texas is among about a dozen states in the U.S. with a trigger law on abortion. That means if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, abortions will be greatly restricted or banned completely in those states. Now, with the leaked draft of the high court's opinion making the rounds, an opinion that shows the court's conservative majority is ready to overturn Roe, those states with trigger laws are getting close attention. NPR's Ashley Lopez is in Austin. Hi, Ashley. Hey there. What have you heard from Texas leaders so far about this draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, Texas is one of the most conservative states in the country. As you mentioned, we have a law that would ban, effectively ban all abortions 30 days after the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, if they do, of course. So as you can imagine, political leaders here are happy about what's in this draft opinion. Texas's Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said in a statement this morning that this is a great day and that Republican lawmakers in the state haven't just been hoping that Roe v. Wade would eventually be overturned, but they've been planning for it, too. Well, Texas recently banned all abortions after six weeks. So what does this mean in a state where most abortions are are already illegal? 
What Texas has right now is a ban on abortions as early as six weeks into a pregnancy, which is before many people even realize they're pregnant. But abortion is still accessible here for people who make it to a clinic in time. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, though, and the, sta the state's trigger ban goes into effect, abortions will be criminalized across the board. And the only exception will be to save the life of the pregnant person. And it's likely clinics will shutter across the state. And everyone who wants the procedure will have to leave the state to get it. What are anti-abortion groups uh, saying today? Well, groups here are excited about this. You know, John Siegel with Texas Right to Life says his group has been working for years to craft legislation that would force the Supreme Court to reconsider Roe v. Wade. In just the past decade, the court has heard arguments on multiple abortion laws just from here in Texas, and none have taken down Roe v. Wade. Siegel says this draft has the potential to be a huge win for his group. To see that they are leaning in the direction of overturning Roe is a phenomenal victory for the pro-life movement. Uh, it's not the end of the work that we need to do, um, but it is a significant step in that direction. And what about supporters of abortion rights in Texas, Ashley? Well, there's a lot of concern there. Because of Texas's six-week ban in a lot of ways, Roe v. Wade hasn't really existed in this state. Texans have had far fewer abortion rights than the rest of the country for months now. And abortion rights advocates say they know what could be coming for all these other states that have trigger laws on the books. I spoke to Christina Parker with the Lilith Fund, which is an abortion fund operating in Texas. She says already most people in Texas seeking an abortion have to leave the state to get one. You know, that's already devastating enough. That's already horrible. Um, then it's just going to become that everyone has to leave, that nobody can get basic essential abortion care in their own communities, which is uh, is devastating. I think what this means for other states is it's suddenly going to look a lot more like us, look a lot more like Texas, where people are being forced to travel. And that, of course, only applies to people who have the means or people who can find the financial and logistical support to leave. Abortion rights advocates also say there are already longer wait times in clinics that provide abortions and, the, and around the country because of the influx of Texas patients in recent months. And that's only going to get worse if the Supreme Court turns, uh, overturns Roe v. Wade. That's NPR's Ashley Lopez in Austin, Texas. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. We know the pandemic has taken an immense toll on frontline healthcare workers. A new report by the Department of Health and Human Services confirms that and reveals the depth of distress throughout the, the healthcare system. NPR health correspondent Ritu Chatterjee is here to tell us more. Hi, Ritu. Hi, Ari. So depths of distress, uh, what exactly does this report show? You know, we've heard so much about healthcare workers being burned out, but this report really shows that it's way beyond burnout. Many of uh, frontline healthcare providers are reporting symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD, especially those who spent more time treating COVID patients. Um, and I spoke with Health Secretary Javier Becerra. He said he was recently in Jacksonville, Florida, meeting with some healthcare workers, and here's what he heard. We heard from a nurse who said that twice he suffered strokes during the pandemic. He never really stopped working, except of course, to take care of the strokes. But this is the type of load that uh, healthcare workers had. And you know, providers are still reeling from two years of this and many have quit their jobs. 
And of course, those staffing shortages made the experience for those still working on the front lines even more difficult. Exactly, exactly. And the report uh, talks about it quite a bit. First of all, it acknowledges that the staffing shortage was serious even before the pandemic. And throughout these past couple of years, it's just gotten worse, reaching a peak last January when 22% of hospitals reported critical staffing shortages. And we know that the nursing homes and long-term care facilities, of course, have been very badly hit. Um, But the health secretary also pointed out that while many providers have quit their jobs, a significant number were either furloughed, had their hours cut back, or were just let go. I think over 10-15% of those who were reported being unable to work, it was because it was their employer who had closed or lost business due to the pandemic back in 2020. Now, you know, employment levels have improved since then, but healthcare workers are still very much struggling. And so how are people in healthcare receiving this report? So I asked that question of Dr. Jessica Gold. Uh, She's a psychiatrist at Washington University, St. Louis, and she works a lot with healthcare workers. And Gold says that um, frontline um, providers feel like their concerns, their um, mental health issues um, are being dismissed by those in positions of power in their industry and society at large. So this report from the government is a good thing. I think it's validating for people to see a government say, this is a problem, you're not making it up. It has been hard for you and we see it. And, you know, Gold herself received a federal grant recently uh, to address the problem to connect doctors and nurses at her hospital system to uh, connect them more easily to mental health care. But she says, ultimately, it's really lawmakers and healthcare systems that really have to take this up seriously and address those underlying causes, um, underlying systemic causes of stress like the staffing shortages. So what does the report say about solutions? So it lists the investments the government has made already in addressing the problem, like the grant money that's gone to um, uh, you know researchers um, and professionals like Dr. Gold. Um, it talks about pandemic relief money that's gone directly to providers. And I asked the health secretary about what he's prioritizing, and he said uh, HHS is taking up the staffing issue and starting with nursing homes, which were particularly hard hit by the pandemic. That's NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. An exhibit on display now in Connecticut showcases the work of Adger Cowens. He's a black photographer and painter whose subjects range from civil rights marches to Hollywood movie sets. Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Karen King brings us to Cowens' studio, where the artist reflects on his life's work. Adger Cowens shuffles through a stack of prints. Sketches, collages, and paintings cover almost every surface in his studio. Let me see, what else? There's a photo of Sarah Vaughn performing at the Newport Jazz Fest, and a picture of Mick Jagger relaxing in a hammock. 
Yes. Cowens pulls out a photo of a small girl silhouetted against the piercing beams of the sun. She looks like she's falling towards the ground. This is Icarus. They were throwing a little girl up with a blanket on the beach, and I had just gotten a 21 millimeter lens, and I got real close to the edge of the blanket, and I shot this picture, and it reminded me of Icarus. That's after the Greek mythological figure who flew too close to the sun. Cowens, who's 85, was one of the first black students to earn a degree in photography from Ohio University in the late 1950s. He says growing up, he often listened to what the older men around him were talking about. I was a news carrier. I was a paper boy. So I was reading papers while I was carrying. So I was pretty up on what was going on in the world. And the things that upset me was that racism. It still upsets me about black people getting hung and killed and shot. I, it got me. It gets me today. Cowan says he faced a lot of racism working in a predominantly white industry. He got his big break when celebrated photojournalist Gordon Parks, who was the first black staff photographer at Life magazine, hired Cowens as his assistant. So I took all that racism and rejection and everything and I put it in my work. As one of the big things I learned from Gordon Parks was to take negative energy and turn it into positive power. Cowens was also the first black still photographer in Hollywood, working with directors like Spike Lee and Francis Ford Coppola. He didn't let the movie stars face him. He wanted to get to know the people he photographed. I wanted those moments of life flowing past me, whether it was movie stars, whether it was people walking down the street, whether it was an abstract, no matter what it was, if I had a feeling here in my heart, then it was important to me to do it. Halima Taha is the curator for Callan's new exhibition at the Fairfield University Art Museum in Connecticut. She says she poured through hundreds of his images to select the right ones with him for the gallery, some pictures that have been published before and many that hadn't. One of the things that happens to many artists um, and particularly artists of African descent, is that the same images keep being reproduced or exhibited because people are familiar with them. Taha says Cowens got a lot of support from his family and community growing up in Columbus, Ohio, and it gave him the conviction and confidence to handle the prejudice he faced later. I think that because he came out of that kind of environment, he was able to focus on developing himself as a human being, as a visual artist, and in particular as a photographer. Back in his studio, Cowens is painting. That's what he spends most of his time doing now, and he's not thinking of stopping anytime soon. He says he didn't put out a book of his photography until he was 80. People say, well, what do you want your legacy to be? I don't know anything about a legacy. You know, it'll be what it is. It'll be what the people make it. I can't make my legacy. I don't even know what that is. All I want to do is the work, and it'll be whatever it'll be. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Karen King. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the struggle for two Chicago parents getting their newborn twins out of Ukraine and the bureaucracy they face trying to get them now out of Poland. Then, next hour, the politics of abortion after today's Supreme Court news. All of that and more coming up here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy skies tonight, chance of showers, 
After about midnight or so, lows in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with patchy fog and scattered showers. Highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. Florida property insurance is a hot mess. Consumers are on life support right now. They're facing double-digit rate increases. They're paying more money for less coverage. The cause? One word. Litigation. In fact, more than 75% of all property insurance lawsuits in the United States originate in Florida. We're going to find out why. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Two months ago, in a Polish border town, I met a new father named Alex Spector. He goes by Sasha, and on that day, he told me he believed his life was finally about to become a little less intense. So my friends, they're like, welcome, finally, welcome to the normal fatherhood. And I'm like, okay, thank God. Sasha and his partner Irma are parents to baby boys named Lenny and Moisha. The twins were born prematurely to a surrogate mother in Kiev, just as Russia began its war on Ukraine. Rescuers exfiltrated the babies and the surrogate in a dramatic mission called Operation Gemini. They dodged Russian artillery fire, drove through a snowstorm, and finally arrived at a Polish hospital where Sasha met his boys for the first time. The real life begins now, and this was the surreal life. You know, the twins, just I had to look at them and, you know, be saturated with their presence. That was two months ago. So I was shocked to get a text from Sasha recently saying the family was not back home in Chicago, as I'd assumed. They were still in Poland, stuck in bureaucratic limbo. My name is Irma Nunez. I'm Sasha's partner, and I'm mother to Moisha and Lenny. And I'm going to cry saying that. It's been a very long journey. You thought that getting the kids out of the war zone would be the hardest part. Right, of course. Yeah. But... This is harder. Here's what happened. Irma flew to Poland soon after I met Sasha in early March. She had stayed in Chicago to get the family's legal paperwork in order. And Irma, did you go straight to the hospital to see the boys? No, we arrived late at night. But the very next the next day, that was the first place we got. We, we have to book an appointment with, to see our kids like a day in advance. And back then there were COVID protocols. Right. So do you remember the first time you saw them? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I described it to a friend as, uh, you know, like Marsha Brady when she falls in love on the Brady Bunch and she puts her school books in the refrigerator. It's like I finally understood what people mean when they say like I was on cloud nine. I was just floating like everything else disappeared. And it was just amazing. I actually didn't cry that day because it was just this blast of like unreal happiness. The hospital only let them experience that happiness with their twins for one hour each day. Sasha and Irma spent the rest of the time fighting bureaucracy. So eventually the hospital said, we need to prove your paternity in order to discharge the kids too. But how do we, and then American embassy in Warsaw said, in order for us to give the kids passports, we need you to bring the kids to Warsaw. So there was this catch, wonderful catch 22, where in order to release the kids, the hospital needed passports. To get the passports, we had to take the kids to Warsaw. 
The case even went to court, where Sasha says the judge was less than helpful. They wouldn't really tell us what exactly we need. They would just say, we still don't have all the documents. Eventually, officials said they needed to see birth certificates that were in Ukraine. Remember, these kids had been rescued from a hospital while the city of Kyiv was under Russian assault. And so Sasha actually left the Polish city of Zhezhov to cross back over the border and retrieve the documents from the Ukrainian city of Lviv. Can you just tell me about the moment you realized you would have to cross the border and go into Ukraine to solve this problem? Um, you know, the funny thing is that for me, like just sitting in Zhezhov without able to do anything was just the worst thing possible. And so... But in order to collect all the proper documents to go to Ukraine, it was another huge task. When I recorded this conversation with them on Friday, Sasha and Irma were in a hotel room in Jeshov. Sasha said it was his 14th hotel since he'd arrived in Poland two months ago for what he thought would be a short trip. You know, I <laughs> today was the hardest. Today was just excruciating. Because at this point, we submitted everything that can possibly be submitted. And when I called the court this morning, the secretary said, the decision has been made. The judge has to sign on it. And then we'll fax it to the hospital. And I said, but what's the decision? And she says, I'm sorry, but I cannot tell you. Where do things stand right now? They actually, the things are actually, well, the two boys are lying down just they're there in the room with you yeah you want to see they're there in the hotel room show you. <laughs> ah. oh in two months this is the first time you've actually had them in your own space not in a hospital that's right that's right i suddenly feel like i should be talking quietly so i don't wake them up that's what i was doing but erna said no we have to speak loudly so they learn <laughs> that's not <laughs> <laughs> living in a little nursery for the past two months and uh, the nurses don't keep quiet they don't and they play pop music and uh, drop things and there's monitors beeping all the time i didn't realize this whole time we've been talking they are right there behind you yeah. sleeping yeah that's amazing it is amazing yeah i you know when we came in i dropped my back and i thought oh my god what an idiot because they're sleeping but I'm still in the mood of not knowing what to do. But also these babies were born in a war zone, so. Oh, is one of them crying? Well, no, I see coughed. Irma rushing off. He coughed. He coughed. I'm a mother in the steel magnolias vein. <laughs> I just like, stand up and make sure they're breathing. Sasha was actually born in Ukraine when it was part of the Soviet Union. His family came to the U.S. as Jewish refugees. He says this experience has made him feel closer to the place of his birth. He and Irma have used the connections they've made to create a network. They call it Ukraine Trust Chain. We benefited so much from individuals who are willing to just step up and do something. And um, it's really incredible. And being here in Jeshuv, We've um, we've also met a lot of other people who are experiencing difficult things, and we're trying to connect people who we trust with other people we trust, and and build build help build these networks. They have teams of volunteers in the U.S. and Ukraine providing a pipeline of medical supplies, baby formula, food, and other essentials to people in the war. And so my friend and his team in Chicago are getting donations, and they found a way to immediately channel it to the volunteers. 
and the volunteers are doing the hard work, of course. So that conversation was Friday. And yesterday? So we just feel very lucky, lucky to be home. Sasha called me from Chicago. He said Lenny and Moisha cried the entire flight from Poland. Yeah, every, everybody was very helpful, though. You, you just have to say a magic word. These kids were born in Ukraine on the second day of the war, and everybody just goes out of their way to help. The American pediatrician, who'd had months of consultations by phone, finally met the twins for the first time yesterday. She said they're both good babies. And now Sasha and Irma are surrounded by family and friends to help them. There's an army of people who love them. Very different from the army that surrounded them on the first day of their lives in Kyiv. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. And from Data Aiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D A T A I K U dot com. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, Salvadoran-American artist Guadalupe Maravilla's work using both structures and sound baths as a way to heal. We look at his new exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows in the upper 40s with showers moving in in the early morning hours. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts confirms a leaked draft decision overturning Roe v. Wade is legitimate, though not a final court decision. It's Tuesday, May 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up, how the expected decision by the court would upend reproductive rights for women around the country and the nation's political situation. The thing that we've been saying will happen for at least a decade, to see it written down in plain language. Also, why the Javelin anti-tank missiles emerged as one of the key weapons for Ukrainians fighting off the Russian invasion. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, the expected interest rate hike coming from the Federal Reserve tomorrow. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Chief Justice John Roberts today acknowledged the authenticity of a leaked draft opinion that would reverse nearly 50 years of Supreme Court precedent, declaring that women have a constitutional right to abortion. The draft was obtained by Politico and published last night. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. In a written statement, Roberts said that while the opinion is authentic, it's not a final decision by the court, nor does it represent the final position of any justice. Quote, to the extent this betrayal of confidences of the court was intended to undermine the integrity of our operations, it will not succeed, he said. Roberts added that court employees have an exemplary tradition of respecting the confidentiality of the judicial process, adding that this was a singular and egregious breach of that trust. He said he directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Governor Kathy Hochul says she's horrified by the leaked opinion showing the Supreme Court poised to overturn R.V. Wade. Remember station WAMC, Ian Pickus says more. Hochul says New York will welcome anyone who needs access to care with open arms. She says the state health department is working to ensure continued access to telemedicine abortions where a New York doctor meets a patient via telemedicine and prescribes abortion pills. The state of New York will always be there for anyone who needs reproductive health care, including an abortion. And my message to those who will deny this fundamental right, basic right, you don't want to mess with us. The Democrat referenced her first granddaughter born days ago, saying she refuses to let her have to fight for the rights generations have fought for and won. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany. Russia appears to be upping its assaults against Ukraine. The country's military saying its artillery has hit more than 400 Ukrainian targets. Russia's defense ministry spokesman Major General Igor Kondrashenkov saying those targets included Ukrainian artillery positions, troop strongholds, and two fuel depots. Ukrainian officials, meanwhile, say Russia's rockets continue to rain down on civilian locations. Policymakers from the Federal Reserve are meeting in Washington. NPR's Scott Horsley reports are expected to make it more expensive to borrow money in an effort to combat inflation. The Fed is widely expected to boost interest rates by half a percentage point. When its meeting wraps up tomorrow, that would be the first half-point increase in more than two decades, a sign of the urgency with which the central bank is now treating inflation. Additional rate hikes are expected to follow in the coming months. The Fed's also planning to start gradually reducing its collection of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. The yield on 10-year treasuries briefly topped 3 percent on Monday for the first time since 2018. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 67 points. The Nasdaq rose 27 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the Senate must eliminate the filibuster and pass legislation to preserve abortion rights. She spoke outside the Supreme Court today after the leak of a draft opinion that suggests the justices are poised to overturn Roe v. Wade and allow states to impose restrictions or bans on abortion. Well, I am here because I am angry, and I am here because the United States Congress can change all of this. Yes, it does. Warren says if the court's final decision overturns Roe, it will especially hurt women of color, those with lower incomes and victims of abuse. Meantime, local opponents of abortion rights say the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned will not have a big impact locally. Catholic Action League Massachusetts Executive Director C.J. Doyle says if the draft ruling becomes final, the law would revert to before Roe. 
all that's going to happen is we're going to go back to 1973, where some states like Massachusetts, abortion will remain legal. In other states, like perhaps Louisiana, it will uh, it will remain it will become illegal. Doyle says he suspects the release of the draft decision was intended to ignite controversy in an attempt to put pressure on justices before a final vote is taken. A U.S. Senate committee has deadlocked on whether to advance the nomination of a Framingham state representative to serve in the Biden administration. Today, the Energy Committee split on party lines on the nomination of Maria Robinson to be an assistant secretary of energy in the Office of Electricity. Democrats say she's well qualified. Republican opponents, though, say she is too supportive of renewable energy. The nomination is still alive. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer can move to bring the nomination to the full Senate for a vote. State pension funds holdings holdings in Russian interests have lost nearly all their value amid the war in Ukraine. Lawmakers voted to require Massachusetts divest from those funds earlier this year. At the time, the board overseeing the fund estimated the state had about $140 million with exposure to Russia. Its executive director says those holdings are now worth less than $10 million. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight, chance of showers, lows in the upper 40s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Vital Projects Fund, supporting the Museum of Modern Art, where Matisse, the Red Studio, unites the art and objects in this landmark painting for the first time and is now on view. MoMA.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. The right to an abortion in the United States appears closer than ever to being eliminated. Last night, shortly after 8 o'clock, Politico published a leaked draft of a majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito that would overturn Roe v. Wade. As the news spread, a crowd started to form outside the Supreme Court. Juliet Moltz was among the first people to show up. She plopped herself cross-legged in front of the marble steps. She said she had to come. Because a week ago I had a pregnancy scare. Because a week ago I thought I, I might be pregnant and I didn't know what to do and I'm not. But to hear this a moment later, I was terrified. Terrified for herself, she said, and for anyone who might soon be unable to end an unwanted pregnancy. The court's draft ruling, if it becomes final, would not ban abortion nationwide. It would leave that up to each state. Many Republican-led states are ready to enact their own bans. Morgan McFarland's voice quivered at that prospect. I have friends that aren't in blue states that are at risk right now, and I don't think that they deserve to be at any greater risk than I do just because of where they live. They still live in the United States. Kira Thornton said she has been dreading this moment, but also preparing for it. I just got an IUD because I was scared that this was going to happen so that I could be protected for five more years, and I was right. Most of the hundreds of people who flocked to the court steps last night were abortion rights supporters, but abortion opponents also came. Katrina Fee came with a group of classmates. I came out here because it is so important that the nation see that there are young people like me across America that are uh, so hopeful for the future of this country now that the court has potentially decided to overturn Roe. Why does she feel so strongly about this? I was a triplet. My parents' doctors suggested that I be aborted for convenience. Thank God my parents chose life. Herb Garrity leads an anti-abortion rights group and said that if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, 
abortion opponents should start to focus in part on discouraging illegal abortions and on supporting mothers and their new babies. For so many pregnant people, they feel as though abortion is their only option, and there's nothing pro-choice about that. I hope that we can unite and work together to meet the needs of young families. Those needs need to be met in our communities. Anne Mesnikoff stood alone, quietly, nearby, thinking, she said, about her daughter and her disbelief that a right women have held for 50 years in this country seems on the brink of being snatched away. Uh, You know, it's a terrible moment to have the Supreme Court take away a woman's right to choose. And if that draft becomes the, the law, it has huge impacts across the country. If the decision to overturn Roe is ultimately handed down from the court, the political implications could be monumental. Last night's leak has already triggered a political earthquake. We're joined now by NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason, NPR's Kelsey Snell on Capitol Hill, and NPR's Sarah McCammon, who covers abortion. Welcome to all of you. Hello. Happy to be here. Mara, let's start with you. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts today confirmed that this draft decision uh, was authentic. He said it is not final. President Biden had a pretty strong reaction after the chief justice announced that. He called this draft decision uh, radical before uh, taking off in Air Force One today. If the rationale of the decision as released were to be sustained, a whole range of rights are in question. A whole range of rights. And the idea we're letting the states make those decisions, localities make those decisions, would be a fundamental shift in what we've done. What do you make of that reaction, Mara? Well, he talked about two things. What's at stake, meaning all these other things that would fall under the right to privacy, which that draft questioned, uh, the right to marry, gay marriage, the right to use contraception. That would also be uh, in the balance. So the president was focusing on what's at stake other than just the right to abortion. And then he also talked about the remedy. He said it's up to voters to elect pro-abortion rights legislators at every level, Senate, House, also state legislatures. And this is the big question for Democrats. They've never been seized with the importance of the courts like conservatives have who have focused for 50 years on overturning Roe. Uh, Democrats haven't done that. And now the question is, does this ruling, assuming it becomes a ruling, have a boomerang effect? Will liberal voters feel like their rights are under threat? Will they be more energized to come out to vote? Or will this take a second or third place behind inflation, crime, and immigration as issues for the midterms? We don't know that yet. Well, Kelsey, now that Democrats in Congress know that this draft opinion could become final in the coming months, uh, do they have any plans to act on abortion protections? Well, the vast majority of them said they're outraged. They say these are the kinds of actions Democrats have warned voters could happen since way back during the 2016 presidential election when Republicans held up former President Obama's nominee to replace Justice Antonin Scalia after he died. You know, Democrats generally promised today to to fight to protect Roe. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promised that there will be votes even if they fail. It's a different world now. The tectonic plates of our politics on women's choice and on rights in general are changing. Every senator now under the real glare of Roe v. Wade being repealed by the courts is going to have to show which side they're on. 
But, you know, in reality, Democrats do not have the votes to pass federal abortion protections right now. And putting people on the record might be the best they can hope for. They would need either 60 votes to overcome a filibuster or a feasible plan to end the filibuster. I will note that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia told reporters today that he still supports the filibuster. Well, that's Democrats. Uh, I want to ask you about two Republican senators, though, Kelsey, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine. They have both supported abortion rights in the past. Right. And they both said the decision would be inconsistent with what they were told by justices during their confirmation processes. Collins specifically named Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Murkowski went further and she told a group of reporters that a draft decision rocked her confidence in the court. A little bit later, she added this. It was not the direction that I believed that the court would take based on statements that have been made about Roe being settled and being precedent. Now, you know, they both pointed to a narrow bill that they've supported um, and sponsored that talks about prohibiting states from imposing what they call an undue burden on the ability of a woman to obtain an abortion. But that would allow states to impose some restrictions still. And, you know, that plan might win their support. But two Republicans and 48 or 50 Democrats still does not equal the 60 votes they would need for the bill to pass. Sarah McCammon, I'd like to bring you in here. You're going to be reporting on this elsewhere in the program, but briefly, what are abortion rights advocates saying about this Supreme Court leak? Well, as you might expect, even though this was somewhat expected, they're saying it's devastating, especially for people who already struggle to get access to abortion disproportionately, people of color, people in rural areas. Um, But they are expressing some optimism that this could galvanize Democratic voters in the 2022 midterms, as well as in 24. Mini Tamaraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, believes that this is going to be a wake-up call, as she put it, that will turn out progressive voters even more than, for example, after the 2016 election, which did lead to a blue wave in 2018. We are seeing a ton of support and energy from our advocates, our donors, our voters, our volunteers to mobilize. Sometimes you need that extra push. And unfortunately, as horrific as this is, uh, this is probably it. And we're going to invest significantly to make it so. And on that note, a coalition of major reproductive rights groups, including NARAL, announced that they're spending $150 million this year toward voter mobilization efforts. They're targeting congressional races, of course, along with governor's races, given the increasing importance of state legislation. And what about abortion opponents, uh, uh, Sarah? They've, they've been wanting to overturn Roe versus Wade for a long time. If the court does, in fact, follow through, where do they go from here? Well, they've been a little cautious in their response, given that this is a leaked draft, but this has been a decades-long goal, if this holds. A coalition largely made up of conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants have been working strategically toward this goal at every level of government for decades, trying to pass state laws that could soon ban most abortions in about half of U.S. states. I talked to Kristen Hawkins with Students for Life today. She says her group is working to pass more early abortion bans around six weeks or earlier. We need to be talking about a law that bans abortions when children can, children's heart begin to be detected or laws that protect life at conception. And her group and others are working toward the idea of a national abortion ban. That, of course, would take a majority in Congress as well as the White House, but it is one of their longer-term goals. 
Kelsey, is that something that Republicans in Congress are, are talking about? The Republicans I talked to today, and I talked to many, they really didn't engage with the substance of the decision or discuss whether they would go further to pass federal abortion restrictions if they do take majorities in the House and the Senate. You know, instead, they mostly focused on the leaker. Uh, they called for an investigation, and some called for eventual prosecution of the leaker. I should point out, though, that you know polls have consistently shown that a majority of Americans oppose overturning Roe versus Wade. The latest Gallup data has 58 percent of Americans against overturning it. And an NPR poll last month gave Republicans a broad advantage in the midterms, but also indicated that voters feel Democrats would do a better job on the issue of abortion by 11 points. Mara, a quick final word goes to you. The Supreme Court prides itself on the idea that it's not a political body. So what are the implications of the court making such a major ruling and potentially breaking with public opinion on an issue that stirs up such strong feelings? Well, historically, the Supreme Court has been on the opposite side of majority public opinion many, many times. But what's happening now is that there's a much bigger debate that's starting. A majority of the Supreme Court justices were appointed by presidents who became president despite losing the popular vote. And the senators who confirmed some of those justices represented a minority of Americans. So we're moving from a system where the founders wanted uh, minority party rights to be protected to a system that is looking a lot more like minority rule. And the big question is, uh, does the majority of Americans want this to continue or not? That was NPR national correspondent Mara Liason, national correspondent Sarah McCammon, and congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why Javelin anti-tank missiles have become a huge part of American aid to Ukraine. That's coming up here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. In business news, shares of Biogen saw little change today after news that the company's CEO plans to step down. Michel Vunatsos has led the company since 2016 and led Biogen's drive to develop its controversial Alzheimer's treatment, Aduhelm. Biogen also says it's stepping back from extensive marketing of that treatment as part of a $1 billion cost-saving plan. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day slightly higher. The Dow was up 67 points, the Nasdaq rose 27 points, and the S&P 500 gained 20 points. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion, an opera in jazz. Cutler Majestic Theater, May 18th through 22nd. BLO.org. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Remember, stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, scattered showers, lows dropping to the upper 40s. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices, catering your office lunch in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. 
Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Floridiva. And I'm Ari Shapiro. President Biden made the case today for billions of dollars of new spending for Ukraine. He toured an Alabama factory that makes javelins. He says the missile has become very popular. They've been so important. There's even a story about Ukrainian parents naming their children, not a joke. Their newborn child, javelin or javelina. Earlier today, I spoke with Mark Kansian about this weapon. He's a retired Marine colonel and an expert on military spending. And first, I asked him to describe it for us. The Javelin is the top end of the infantry anti-tank weapons. It is a fire-and-forget weapon. That is, you lock it onto the target, you pull the trigger, the missile fires, and it goes off on its own. It will home in on the target. The shooter can then go hide. It has a long range, up to... 4,000, a little more than 4,000 meters. And it also has a top attack capability. In other words, it can it can go straight at a target or it can go up in the air and come down on top of a target. That's important because tanks have much thinner armor on top, so they're much more vulnerable. It seems like kind of the go-to weapon of this war. Has it been that way in conflicts for a while or is there something unique about Russia's invasion of Ukraine that makes it particularly suited to this conflict? Well, the javelin has become the iconic weapon of the war. It caught everyone's imagination. You know, there's Saint uh, Javelin, there are javelin songs. The reason I think it caught people's attention is because the Russians have a very mechanized uh, military. They've got lots of armored vehicles. The Ukrainians needed as many anti-tank weapons as they could get. So we supplied these kinds of weapons early on in the conflict, and that was critical in allowing the Ukrainians, who were mostly light infantry, to hold back these uh, Russian armored formations. Hmm. So these are particularly good for perhaps an overpowered military with less heavy equipment to take on a bigger, heavier, more armored uh, military like Russia's. They are. And they're also very good for a military that may not be all that well trained because it doesn't take very long to learn how to use it. It is important to note that Javelin's only one of many kinds of anti-tank weapons that have been provided to the Ukrainians. There's another one that's called NLAW. It's also guided. It's not quite as sophisticated. It's been provided in much larger numbers. So many of the attacks that we're seeing probably came from other kinds of uh, anti-tank weapons, but the Javelins are the most capable and they've certainly caught the public's imagination. And in just a couple of months, the U.S. has already sent 5,500 javelins to Ukraine. Biden is now asking Congress for another $33 billion in aid to Ukraine, $20 billion of which is for military aid. Any guess how big a chunk of that is to purchase javelins specifically? I think we can guess. And the answer, unfortunately, is zero. Hmm. And the reason is that we've given about a third of our inventory to Ukraine already. The stocks are getting low. There's some risk on certain U.S. war plans that there may not be enough for our own purposes. I think what you're going to see is that the United States will provide a broad spectrum of weapons to Ukraine, including some anti-tank weapons, just not the Javelin in particular. So these can't just be churned out like pizzas. If they are so essential to the Ukrainian war effort, what does that mean if the U.S. has kind of gone through the stockpile that it's comfortable sharing already? Yes, production is a big problem. We've provided, as you say, over 5,500 javelins to Ukraine. 
the United States has been producing about six or 800 a year. So you can do the math and figure out how long it would take to replace those missiles. Now we can ramp up production. That takes time. It's also important to note that they're moving into a different phase of the conflict, providing different kinds of equipment now. We're providing uh, artillery, for example, armored vehicles. So the aid package is going to be uh, broader than it has been uh, before. Mark Kantian is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me on the show. And now the story of an artist from El Salvador who has New Yorkers shaking, literally. Guadalupe Maravilla works with sounds, vibrations, and their effect on the body. The artist has a new show at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and that's where NPR's Jasmine Garst caught up with him. Somewhere in Brooklyn, the walls and floors vibrate with noise. Maravilla says it's the same frequency as the sound the sun makes. It's as gorgeous as it is eerie. This is part of artist Guadalupe Maravilla's new exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. As he explains it, his whole life has been about this duality between horror and beauty. He grew up in El Salvador in the 70s and 80s. The country was being consumed by a bloody civil war. When he was eight, his family hired coyotes who transport people across the border. They took him to the U.S. From El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, all the way through Mexico, and eventually I made it to Tijuana, and eventually I crossed. He drew a lot on the road. He would play a children's game from El Salvador called Tripachuca with other migrants. Players draw lines on a paper that can never cross. The end result looks like a labyrinth. As a ritual, before he opens an exhibit, Maravilla plays a giant game of Tripachuca at the museum with another immigrant. He says there's something therapeutic about it. Confronting trauma when one is red is part of the healing process. Maravilla's art is all about the trauma of displacement. In this latest exhibit, he decided to showcase ancient Mayan sculptures that belong to the Brooklyn Museum. I feel that these objects are displaced. They don't belong here. They belong in, in Central America museums. Also featured are his breathtaking sculptures called disease throwers, massive structures made of materials like volcanic ash and sea conches. Maravilla often travels back to El Salvador and retraces the journey he made as a child, buying and gathering objects along the way. That chicken I picked up somewhere in Mexico, uh, that rose also in Mexico, these corn that you see here made out of volcanic rock, they were made in Mexico. The sculpture looks like mythological beings. I'm really influenced by my mythology. Right? And if you think about their gods or deities, they're, they're very frightening looking. But at the end, they're the ancestors, they're the protectors. Attached to them are gongs, which Maravilla pounds and scratches, making sounds that bring them trembling to life. Maravilla began exploring sounds during his own health crisis. He says the trauma he experienced as a child had a major impact on his well-being. Years after arriving in the U.S., he developed a rare form of cancer. In addition to chemotherapy, he sought spiritual healers, shamans. Sound as medicine is nothing new. Tibetan throat singers, they use vibration to heal. The flutes, the singing of the shamans in South America and all indigenous cultures also use sound as medicine. 
He's known for creating sound baths in which people are exposed to a flood of sound. He spends a lot of time performing these rituals with undocumented communities and cancer patients. At one of them, which I was allowed to attend but not record, people lay on the floor. The vibrations were completely overpowering. My body felt like it was levitating. It was otherworldly. Like much of Maravilla's life and work, it was at times frightful but also breathtakingly beautiful. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. Tonight, the expected half-point interest rate hike coming from the Federal Reserve tomorrow and where it would affect the economy the fastest. That's coming up. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of showers. Lows dropping to the upper 40s. Mostly cloudy with more showers tomorrow. Highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College Behavioral Health Service Corps, a service year for college graduates who want to earn, learn, and change lives. Apply now, williamjames.edu. And Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org.